Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we get to look at it this morning. We pray that you might teach us and instruct us. Lord, please show us the way that we should live. Impart your wisdom to us. You say that if we lack wisdom, anyone lacks wisdom, we should ask for it, and you'll give it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom this morning as we dwell on your word, as we think about how you, who you are and how you've acted in the world. But we pray, Lord, that this wouldn't just be an instruction to us that, that kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But please, Lord, change our way of living to be more and more in your conformity to your way, to be, to be conformed to your image. Please, Lord, lead us forward this morning through your word. Make us your people who are more and more look like you and not like the world which we are being saved from. We pray these things and we ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. As you will see on the slide, this is part two. So this morning we are picking up something of where we were in previous previously, where, where we covered a bunch of stuff last week. I wonder uh, if any of the kids can remember anything off the top of your head from last week. Anything, what happened in the passage last week? something for Gideon. Oh, that's right. Yeah. For, for the Lord and Gideon. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. That did happen. All right. Let me just quickly give you the cliff notes. Gideon was called to cast down altars and for false worship and raise up true worship. God's people are always called to reject and overturn false religion so that we can pursue the pure and true religion of Jesus. So, Gideon pulled down the altars like God called him to do. God uses flawed deliverers like Gideon to deliver people from oppression. He used a flawed person like Gideon to deliver Israel from the oppression of Midian. But that reminded us of the way that God uses what seems weak in the world to accomplish his purposes. And in particular, we thought about the way that Jesus appeared weak and, and yet God used him, that simple, meek man, to overcome Satan's sin and death. God uses uh, the, the apparent weakness of those 300 men of Gideon to overtake a huge Midianite army. We also saw that Gideon was a fearful man. He was fearful at almost every turn, it seemed. But we are to fear God alone. Not to waver in our faith, but to put our way, our fear of man, and to fear God. So today we're continuing on the story after the battle. After the battle, we're covering the last portion of Gideon's career as a judge in Israel. And as, it be, as I was reflecting on this passage, it became apparent to me that there is heaps of wisdom bound up in these pages, either as object lessons in foolishness or lessons in wisdom. And so my heading this morning for each of the four points that we're going to look at is a proverb. There's four 
sections and four proverbs to go with it. So kids, uh, my, uh, my challenge for you this morning is to see if you can write down where each proverb comes from as we make our way through the text. The first proverb is that a soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. We'd left the story at a bit of a cliffhanger. We were partway through the, 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 the Gideon kind of overtaking on Midian. He'd put the Midian army to flight, and Gideon had then sent the message out. So the 300 men had put the army into chaos. They started killing and slaughtering each other. And then, as is usual, when it turns out that when it looks like the battle is lost, all the people just run for their lives and they, they, they retreat or they disappear into the, into the scrub. They, they get out of there to try and save their lives. And so Gideon then sends out a message to all the tribes and says, hey, the Midian army, Midianite army is on the run. Everybody come out and let's chase them down and take them, take them out. And so one of the tribes that answers the call is Ephraim. They come and they come out and they actually capture two princes, Oreb and Zeb, and uh, part them from their heads. Now, Ephraim has come out and they've helped out. They've caught the princes. They get some of the battle glory. They got some of the. They get some of the. Um, they look good because of the way that they have helped uh, win the victory. But despite the fact that they had the prestigious victory, and despite the fact that they had captured these two princes, they turn around to Gideon and say, hey, why didn't you include us earlier on? Why didn't you include us in the first part of the battle? They're a little bit offended. The Ephraimites ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when, we, when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. See, Ephraim was one of the biggest tribes along with Manasseh, and they wanted some of the battle glory from driving off Midian. And they said, like, why did you exclude us? But we've already seen that God chose Gideon. And he wanted to use the w apparent weakness of Gideon from the tribe of Abiza and of the force of th only 300 men to demonstrate that it was God who was giving the victory. It was God who was doing the delivery. It wasn't in their own strength. And yet, even in the way, here in the wake of such a striking victory, we have strife among the tribes as they vie for position. You know, why did you leave us out? They're not looking to God and saying, God, hey, thanks God for this, for the way that you have worked and delivered your people, Israel. They're saying, why weren't we included? They're not looking to God, but asking why they couldn't have a bigger role. And now Gideon, he could have... He could have laid down the law with Ephraim and talked harshly to them and said, you know, who are you to contend with God? He could have challenged them for their poor attitude. But Gideon chooses another tack, the wise tack of the Proverbs. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That comes from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. Gideon opts to play it cool, calm the tensions. Better to keep Ephraim on side and focus on what really matters. The remnants of Midian are on the run and there's not time to really hash this out about who should have called who and when and why he didn't do it and he just plays the diplomat and butters them up. 
He said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebeza? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And their anger against him subsided when he said this. So you see the little parable, the little metaphor that he's using there is he's basically saying the gleanings are the leftover bits after harvest. So imagine with they having grape harvest and they go through and they, they're taking all the, harvesting all the good grapes and they leave behind either the, the, the really dodgy ones or ones that they miss. And so those are the gleanings, they're the leftover bits and often that would be what the poor people would then come and take to kind of have their subsistence. That was their version of Centrelink, the gleanings, the leftover bits. Um, and so Gideon butters them up and basically says, look, for your, your people is greater than our people. The leftover bits of your tribe are better than our whole harvest. He's trying to say, look, that's, your, that's how good you guys are. And, and then he says, look, you guys caught the princes. We haven't been able to do anything like that. He's, he's basically saying, you got nothing... You don't need to worry about your um, pride being challenged or your, um, your position being challenged. And so the Ephraimites, they go, okay, sure. And they're, they're satisfied. And so Gideon does hint at the fact that it wasn't really them who did it. He says, God has given these princes into your hands. So at the end of the day, they don't have anything to boast about. But Gideon still gives them... The, gives them the props for what they did. And it works. But this isn't the only time that we're going to come across intertribal tensions in judges. In fact, this is going to be the start of something that's going to get worse as we make our way through the chapters. Some would suggest that Gideon is merely being pragmatic here to try and keep Ephraim on side for the rest of the campaign. And they see this as mere flattery. I'm, I'm not convinced that that's all he's doing. He might be laying it on a bit thick, but as the proverb shows, when somebody's looking for a fight, you don't need to feed their anger. Gideon disarms the situation with a few kind words. And I think many of us would benefit from the wisdom of the scriptures here in this proverb. Even when we know we're right, even when we have every reason to be treated with more respect, we can follow godly wisdom and disarm our opponents whether they be, um, you know, arguments in our family or with friends or in our workplace. We can disarm the situation, defuse it with soft, kind words. Your tongue is a dangerous weapon and what you do with it can have serious consequences. We get a great verse from James that says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. That's the kind of danger there is with the tongue, right? He's saying basically your religion is worthless if you can't keep your tongue under control. Be careful how you use your tongue, brothers and sisters. What will you use it for? What will you use your tongue for? Next, we see that the way of the treacherous is their ruin. The way of the treacherous is their ruin. So Ephraim is satisfied now. Gideon gets back to the real work at hand, chasing the bad guys out of God's promised land. We, after all, know that there's no place for serpents in the garden. 
And so the army is on the move. The once fearful Gideon is now a confident leader of the warriors of God's people, leading them forward. But they're running out of supplies. They've, they've been on the move and they're out of food. It's the eternal problem of uh, forces on the move. How do you keep them supplied? But they ask for help. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. So they're running out of strength because they haven't got food to eat. It's a relatively common scene for armies on the move. You can only really, um, you know, keep your, your army is only as good as the supply line. And so these guys, they're running out of supplies, and they need to find some food. And so they... You know, the way that you would have to do it is you'd either have to uh, buy it, negotiate somewhere buying food, or you could, um, or if you came to a friendly town, they could gift you, supply you with food, or you could take it, you could steal it. Now, Gideon is not going to steal the food. He's not going to do what Midian had just been doing for the last eight years, which was taking and taking. He, d- he wasn't just going to replace an oppressive outsider with an oppressive insider he just asks nicely but the officials of Sukkoth in verse 6 said do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmana in your possession why should we give bread to your troops and so these two towns of Sukkoth and then in shortly Peniel are most likely Israelite towns and they are turning away their countrymen a huge slap in the face to those who are fellow members of God's household But what's their reasoning? Why won't they help? They had been oppressed by Midian too, and they were afraid. They were afraid that if Gideon and his troops were not successful, then Midian would find out that they helped Gideon and would come back in time and punish them for having helped Gideon. They were worried. They were basically trying to play both sides. They're not saying, look, you know, we don't like you. They're saying, you haven't won yet. <laughs> and so they're trying to keep their, their risk profile low, but by not really choosing sides. And, but in their efforts to cover their own backside, they betray the very people who are trying to help them. They're withholding food to make it more likely, in a human sense, more likely that Gideon would fail. It's like, if you do want to be delivered from Midian, surely you should help the people who are trying to deliver you from Midian. Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmana into my hand, I will tear you, your flesh, with desert thorns and briars. So he says, look, uh, he makes a threat, basically, because you didn't help me, uh, because you've betrayed us, there's going to be a punishment, he promises. And down the road at Peniel, it's the same story. He went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered the men of Sukkoth had, so he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. You might appreciate the great risk these towns would have been making. You could empathize with them. They had little supplies because Midian had been oppressing them. And they had to to, to contribute to a military action to overthrow their oppressors would put them on the line. Yet, it's not a neutral town. 
Penyeth and Sokoth are not neutral towns like Switzerland, trying to stay isolated from everything that's going on around them. No, this is God's people refusing to help God's people on God's mission. This is betrayal. This is treachery. They are traitors. But Gideon and his army push on. We don't know if they find food somewhere else, but they just have to keep pushing on. And so they go and engage the remaining forces of Midian in battle. After the previous battle and, and the, the pursuing the forces, they'd whittled the 120,000 estimated forces of Midian down to an estimated 15,000. And now we actually see in retrospect just how big that victory was with the mere 300. 300 people taking on an army of 120,000. And God, and God worked. God used those 300 in the three, in the, against the 120,000. But they're down. They've shrunk the force down to, to 15,000. And not only is there 300 people attacking them, the Israelite forces are coming out of the tribes and they are pursuing and attacking. They fight and Gideon comes away victorious with two kings of Midian in custody. So now he's, he's outdone the Ephraimites, but uh, he's, he's, they just had princes. Now he had two kings. But he makes his way back to the people who had betrayed him. What does he do? He says, he came to the men of Sukkoth. Here are Zeba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me by saying, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmana in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? And so he took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. So presumably he's used them as basically like whips or, or something like that and beat them. He's, he's come back with the evidence of his victory in hand and he's rubbed their noses in it. And not only that, beforehand, he caught a young fellow um, and interrogated him about who all the leading men in the city were so that he knew who to find and punish when he got there. So Gideon keeps his promise. I mean, that's, that's a good thing, being a person of your word, I guess. He keeps his word and he does the same thing at Sukkoth. He pulled down the tower, sorry, at Peniel. He pulled down the tower um, and killed men of the town. And so we're left here wondering, did Gideon do the right thing? He was the closest thing that they had to a civil government of the day. He was appointed by God to deliver the people. Yet we can't help but wondering if he did the right thing. Did that sin, yes, it was betrayal, yes, it was treachery, but did it warrant the death penalty for the men of Peniel? And was Gideon the man who should have been responsible for carrying it out? Those towns did deserve what they got. They, they did deserve the punishment that received. Then they, they have to, be, they have to um, take account of the guilt that rested on their head. But the question is around whether or not Gideon did the right thing. We, it looks a bit like the once fearful Gideon has let the power go to his head. He's abusing his power with an army at his back to do his bidding. It, it smacks a little of personal vendetta, not righteous zeal. But we move on and we see uh, that he gets Zeba and Zalmana together and he's captured them and he starts to interrogate them. And 
he starts asking about some of the men that they killed. And he said, you know, um, who were the men that you killed? And they basically taunt Gideon. And they said, they, were, they look like sons of princes like you, every one of them. The, the taunt being, all of these men were kind of noble, like they were the, the cream of the crop. All of the men were the cream of the crop. And the implication then is, even though we faced off against the cream of the crop, we still defeated them. As in, we still killed them. So it's basically a taunt. We killed your best men. And Gideon, it turns out that these were probably Gideon's kin. Um, it says brothers, potentially being a, a collective term for his, his, his kin. But it could have been his, his actual blood brothers. So turning to Jephthah, his older son, he said, kill them. But Jephthah did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. So we can't really uh, hold it against this guy. He's only young, but he has the same fear that his father had. It looks like Gideon has moved beyond fear, but his son still has fear. He was unable to participate in the victory, even though the kings were already captured and there, ready to be removed. Gideon offers up uh, great glory to his son by being able to deliver the final blows that would deliver the country from the power of Midian, but he is afraid. But he was only a boy. We can't hold it against him. Now, it might seem a bit uh, bad to have these guys in custody and to take their life, but these aren't innocent guys. We need to keep remembering that. Every time we talk about the, the wars between Israel and the surrounding nations, these aren't innocent people. These, aren't, these guys are oppressors. And in particular, they've been stealing and oppressing from God's people for eight years, not letting them grow their own food, not letting them to keep their own su supplies. They've been, they've been raiding their whole country for eight years and oppressing God's people. They deserved the punishment they received. And Gideon finishes the job, closing the chapter, they are finally free of Midian. It's done. God has fulfilled his plan to deliver Israel through Gideon. They are free. This reminds me of the proverb, in Proverbs 13, verse 15. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. And this applies to both the Midianites and the towns of Sokoth and Peniel. While their, their actions might make sense from an earthly perspective, they were just trying to preserve themselves and get ahead in life, they didn't take into account that God is on the throne, that the Lord is God. And so they were acting from an earthly, selfish perspective. They didn't have good sense. And instead, they committed treachery. Midian, despite being used by God for a time, was still a rebellious people who willingly hurt others unjustly, and they received the treacherous end that they deserved. The men of those two towns could have won favor in, in, the, in the eyes of God's people, but instead they betrayed them, and it brought about their ruin and I wonder if you live like Sokoth and Peniel in the world. You want to say, yes, we're part of God's people. 
But you want to see which way the winds are blowing before you act in faith. And now I'm not talking about reserved consideration. We should all have wisdom. We should all think about what we're doing before we do it. Consider, use, apply the wisdom of God to every situation. But I'm talking about the kind of fearfulness and cowardice because you're not sure if God is on your side. You're not sure. You don't want to act unless kind of victory is assured. You don't want to... You don't want to live and walk in faith if there seems like there's a risk that you might be hurt along the way. We saw this in the apostles. The apostles, when Jesus was taken, what did they do? They fled. They abandoned Jesus. They denied him in the case of Peter. Yet with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, fear is driven away. These Weak and cowardly men are turned into great, bold men who go out proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It seems like a high risk after Jesus had just been killed and yet they go out and they start telling everybody about this Jesus. They're putting their lives on the line, but the thing that changed it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Despite the fear of reprisal, despite what could have happened to them, And what eventually did happen to most of them, most of them lost their lives by people killing them because they were Christians. But the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Friends, it's not for us to hide our talent in the ground, to bury our resources and devotion for fear of reprisal, what people might say about us, what we might lose. In fact, to do so is to betray God. If you look at the parable of the talents, what happens to the guy who buries his talent in the ground? God takes it away from him and gives it to someone else. He had betrayed his master and he suffered for it. We need to remember that loyalty hurts sometimes, but we have to stick with God and his people. If you belong to God's people, then live with such loyalty and devotion that it risks great suffering for the sake of the cause of Christ. Good sense of sticking with God, the one who is on the throne, Jesus Christ, will win you great favor, but to betray him will lead to ruin. Next, we see, give me neither poverty nor riches, neither poverty nor riches. Gideon is asked to become king. After his great victory, they said, man, this is the kind of king material that we need. Let's ask him if he can sit on the throne for us and become our king. And Gideon, on face value, seems to, to, to reject the offer. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandson also. So basically set up a legacy, set up a dynasty of your family ruling over Israel. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Wow, this, this is the right answer. This is the good answer. It's the right answer from the outset. He's saying the right things, but as we're going to see, he's actually not living in accordance with the way that he talks. Because immediately afterwards, he proceeds to take up a tax, essentially. It's, it's a voluntary tax, but he says, look, 
um, basically, because of what I've done for you, how about you uh, give me a portion of your loot? And so all the earrings and all, out of all the loot that they took from the Midianite army, uh, they put a whole bunch together and give it to Gideon. It's mostly gold. And this is the kind of thing that a king would do, is take up a tax. But he said, no, I won't rule over you and neither will my son rule over you. Okay. What does he do with this wealth? He goes and makes a priestly garment. Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in this city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So earlier on in Deuteronomy, sorry, in Exodus and uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and those, the books of the law there, we, we are told about the, the worship of God being set up. And in particular, we were told that the priest, the high priest, w- was to wear a special ephod that represented the tribes of, of, uh, of Israel. The ephod is like a, a special tunic, a, a, like a, a shirt. Uh, and in the case of the one that um, for Israel, it had 12 stones in it to represent the 12 tribes. And they used to put the... Um, I think they put the Urim and the Thummim in it and they draw it out and this was a, one of the ways that God communicated to them was with the Urim and the Thummim. And so the, so what Gideon's doing is he's making this gold priestly garment. Why is he doing this? They have the ephod, or they should have the ephod at the tabernacle and yet here's Gideon in Orpha putting together a priestly garment. And as if to demonstrate that this was a problem, immediately afterwards, we're told that basically it messed up the worship of God's people. It became a snare to them. But that doesn't make Gideon destroy it. We don't have a record here, oh, it became a snare to the people and so Gideon got rid of it. No, we've got God's people being led astray in worship by the guy who was supposed to deliver them to worship God properly. This is the guy who pulled down the altars of Baal. This is the guy who cut down the Asherah and set up an altar to the true and living God. And now he is undermining his own work. And we're left thinking that the deliverance from Midian has not been complete. The oppressor's gone, but the cause of their troubles is still intact. They tore down the altars of Baal, but here they are back doing false worship. What was the point of all this deliverance if they're back where they started, in Orpha, with bad worship? Now, they, they probably do think they're worshipping God, but the problem is they're not doing it the way that God had said. They're being idolatrous. And this is like the golden calf incident. Remember? While Moses was up on the mountain, uh, the people said, oh, we don't know what's happened to Moses. And then, and then what does Aaron do as a priest? He takes a collection of gold from them and he fashioned it into a golden calf and said, this is your God who led you out of Egypt. So they're thinking that they're worshipping, they're saying this is the God, our God, but they were worshipping him in a way that he had not said, and in particular through an idol. God had said, you shall not make any idols. And although this ephod itself doesn't appear to be an idol, it's, it's still an idolatrous element of their worship. And they were doing it in a way that God had not told them to do. But it leaves us kind of despairing. What hope is there? If God gives all this delivery and and, and victory to his people, but they just go straight back 
to what they were doing before. It leaves us hungering for delivery that is permanent. It leaves us hungering for a freedom from the sin in our lives that leads us back to where we have come from. Because the problem is in people's hearts. The problem here is the people's hearts have not been changed. God's changed their outward circumstances, but their heart is still far from God. And this is the same problem for us. You can have your whole world changed, but if your heart is not changed, you're still left apart from God. We're still left in our sin. I can muscle up, uh, you know, maybe I have an addiction, and I can muscle up the willpower to overcome that addiction. But unless my heart is changed, I'm still apart from God. I'm still under the thumb of other sins. We need someone to come and to change our hearts. And that's what we have in Jesus. We have somebody who has come, who has taken away the penalty for our sin, for our false worship, for our idolatry, for our our unfaithfulness. He comes and takes that sin away from us. And then he gives us his own righteousness and then sends his Holy Spirit so that we can receive it and walk in it. God delivers his people through Jesus Christ in a way that they could only hope for in the days of Gideon. I'm going to push on a bit quickly. Midian was uh, subdued before the people of Israel, as it says, and they raised their heads no more. Uh, this is a, that's a joke. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Uh, they had removed their heads from the princes, and so it was impossible for them to raise their heads. That, that's the little play on words there. So God did deliver his people, but despite their hearts being far from him, and God blesses the people through Gideon, even though Gideon was a flawed leader. Gideon was a mixed bag. I think uh, the prayer of Gideon should have been Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The, uh, the writer of the Proverbs here is basically saying it's better not to have too much of one or the other, to be poor and destitute or to be too wealthy. And I think this is Gideon's trap. He's been given great riches. He's been given great power and authority. And he fell into the trap of misusing and abusing it. In the Proverbs, this Proverbs suggests we should have a, a middle way between having too much and too little because it becomes a snare and a stumbling block to us. Why do you think Jesus says that um, the love of money is the root of all evil? This does not mean that wealth in itself is bad, but it comes with risk to sin. We can either, we, if we can't use our wealth in a godly way, it's better not to have it. I wonder if you've thought about all your possessions, all that you have in this world, in that light. It's better to get rid of it all than to sin with it. Part of the Christian practice of tithing or giving our offerings is, is part of the way that God helps us with this, right? We're saying that God's, the wealth that we have is God's wealth 
and we're going to give a part back to him in recognition of the fact that it is his and that we depend on him. Giving our tithes and offerings teaches us to trust that God will supply our future need. I don't need to hold on to this and grasp it. I can be generous with it. I can give it away because God is the one who supplies my needs. I don't need to cling to wealth because God is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And it teaches us to serve God with our resources, not to just lie in our own pockets for a rainy day or to serve ourselves. We look around our society and we see that there are many, many people who are full, using the, uh, the terminology of the proverb, they're full and they deny the Lord. They think their own hands is all they need to rely on. But we fall into the same trap. We live in, in, in our own way with pride in our hearts, not giving God the due honor and not treating our wealth as something that comes from God and something that can be a snare to us if we don't use it wisely. And I haven't talking, spoken about being poor here because the fact of the matter is that I don't think we have any poor among us. In fact, it's hard to find poor people in Australia. Even those who have very little are still very wealthy in the grand scheme of things on the world stage. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I'm saying the tendency... The risk among us is going to be wealth and riches and our misuse of them. Lastly, their feet run to evil. Their feet run to evil. Gideon is now presiding as a judge. And even though he's rejected kingship, as he said, I'm rejecting kingship, he's acting like a king. He takes up that tax. And then he takes on a harem of wives. Not only is this self-indulgence on his part, it's a power trip. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. So here he is, doing what kings do, and saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to rule over you. And then the name that he gives to his son is Abimelech. Does anybody know what Abimelech means? It means, my father is king. Why would you name your son, my father is king, if you're not king? Now, it's called... His, his, the Abimelech's mother here is called a concubine, but this is really just a polite way of saying it's his mistress. It's kind of his official mistress. This is not him being a faithful servant of God and being faithful to his one wife. This is a man who is very self-indulgent. And so Gideon leaves a mixed legacy, delivering Israel, but leaving behind idolatrous worship and promiscuous, promiscuous legacy. This way of living would end up causing a huge trouble for Israel in the next few years, as we will see in the next chapter. And the evidence is straight away seen when Gideon dies. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. 
They didn't remember. They didn't remember. And so they set up Baal Berith. And Baal Berith is Baal of the Covenants. Remember, Baal means Lord. So Lord of the Covenants. Once again, maybe they thought they were worshipping the God of the Covenant that they had entered into, but this wasn't. It was, in fact, a different God. Call it a similar name. Doesn't make it the one God, the one true God. We shouldn't think that we're isolated from the next generation. What we do now has a huge effect. We can leave a legacy that's either a blessing or a curse. Gideon left a legacy that turns out to be a great curse. And this pattern of life is represented well, I think, in this proverb. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. It's the voice of a father giving wise instruction to his son. He's talking about evil people. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. This father warns his son to steer clear of the people who are quick to run to evil. And in the case of our passage, we see that as soon as the strictures are lifted, Israel runs to evil. As soon as Gideon had won, he made wicked worship practices. They're embodying this very kind of thing that this proverb is telling us to run away from. And what are you supposed to do when God's people are the ones you're supposed to flee from and who are emblematic of evil? Well, no matter what is happening, we still remain faithful. Even if there is only one faithful one left, we remain faithful despite what's happening around us. It's easy to look across the church and see how many Christians are quick to run after evil, whatever the latest version of it is. But we don't just look out there and say, isn't that terrible? We see within ourselves our own tendency to run after evil. We should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But when we see evil around us and evil among God's people, we stay apart from it. Not because we don't love them. We do love them. We pray for them. We call them to repent. We love them, but we will not partake with them in their folly. It's not, it's not out of pride that we hold ourselves apart from so much of the evil that goes on in the church. but we do rest in the fact that Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to help us turn away from this evil. We trust him, we commit ourselves to him, and we heed the warnings to steer clear of godlessness and the people who go that way. So what? What were the four proverbs that we saw played out in this passage? Kids, what was the first proverb? Yep, what was the words? Yes, exactly right. A soft answer turns away wrath. What was the second one? Yeah? The way of the treacherous is their ruin. Exactly right. What was number three? see some conversing oh sorry i didn't see your hand up yeah
nor riches. Yes. You can read the rest of it after church. Uh, And then the fourth proverb, what one was that? Yeah. Yes, and did you remember where it came from? No, that's all right. Anybody, Anybody have a crack? It's Proverbs chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. This is the the wisdom that we see played out in this passage. And I hope that we can heed this wisdom, cling to our Savior, walk under Him, and we can avoid the pitfalls uh, of of Gideon's day and age, while also uh, doing the good things that they did. We can have confidence in our Lord, we can walk with Him, we can do what He calls us to do, but we ought to do it with, godly, with godliness, not in our own self-interest. Let me close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this wisdom from your word, for your proverbs, and for what we see playing out in, in Gideon's day. We thank you for the way that you delivered them, and we thank you for the way that you deliver us through Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from the pride uh, and the rebellion that your people continually fell into. Please, Lord, send your spirit among us. Help us change our hearts, regenerate us from the inside out so that we might not fall into the same trap. But Lord, we recognize that it's not anything in us that does this. It is all of you. You are our savior. You are the one who plucks us from the fire as it were. We would be just the same if it were not for your redeeming work. And so that leaves us, Lord, being humbly thankful towards you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.